Right. How nice is this? <laughs> I'm here to welcome you. Good evening to everybody on behalf of Rowan's Ar Rowan Arts and King's Place Words on Monday. I'd like to welcome you to this is the first event for Connecting Conversations here at King's Place. So we're very pleased to be here. And we're delighted to have Giles Fraser, the Reverend Giles Fraser, with us. Just to begin, I just want to begin by saying we're going to talk together for about 45 minutes. Actually, it's really strange not being able to see you. And as a psychotherapist, 45 minutes is quite a problem. So <laughs> 50 minutes I could relax with, but 45. Um, but are we talking, we'll be talking together for about 45 minutes, and then it'll be very much over to you. As I'm, I've introduced myself, my name is Sue Einhorn. I'm a psychotherapist who's also a group analyst, and I'll explain a bit more about that in a minute. But first of all, I'd obviously like to welcome and introduce Reverend Dr. Giles Fraser, now parish priest at St. Mary's Newington, Elephant and Castle, but former dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. He was ordained in 1993. Canon Chancellor, not Dean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the boss. I was never the boss. That's your career. <laughs> yes. um, ordained in 1993, lecturer in philosophy at Wadham College, Oxford, for 10 years. He writes a weekly column in The Guardian called Loose Cannon, which many of you may have read, and I have been doing my homework in these last months or so. Um, on Thought for the Day quite regularly, and one of the questions I'd like to ask you actually is whether it should include humanists as well. And currently back on the moral maze, Giles is a man of passion. He's interested in religion, God, philosophy, politics, and psychoanalysis. So, Giles, I'm going to start with, um, by sitting down... Um, and I'm going to start, actually, the question, as I've talked to many people about you and saying I'm going to talk with you tonight, always comes back to Occupy. Occupy. Yeah, Occupy. And I suppose the question I want to ask you about that, um, in a way, links to me being a group analyst. In the psychotherapy world or the psychoanalytic world, group analysts are a little off to the left. We regard ourselves as a bit more political, if you like, but certainly very interested in how people connect together. So there's a slightly political aspect, um, in, with a small p, to being a group analyst. So we are establishment. And the question I really want to ask you is, what's your responsibilities being a member of the establishment and challenging it at the same time in terms of the resignation in support of the Occupy movement? My responsibilities? Mm. Well, yours, yes, I... Um, thank you. <laughs> um, I've got to start by saying, when you said at the beginning about 45 minutes is difficult for, a, for an analyst, there's a fantastic um, uh, article, comment article in the New York Times yesterday uh, about how analysts, the therapeutic hour that Freud uh, spoke of it as, is getting less and less and less. Oh. And now it's actually getting the, the therapeutic hour is actually lasting 45 minutes. And for some people it's lasting 40 minutes. Oh my goodness. So Absolutely. we're having a therapeutic hour. We're getting hour. shortchanged by the therapeutic <laughs> hour. Um, you live in a, and we all, I'm sure we all live in, um, in worlds of overlapping responsibilities. And mm. I suppose the really interesting thing about Occupy is that when those responsibilities clash mm. and you feel you have competing responsibilities, um, where there isn't, 
Well, I mean, I was going to say there isn't an obvious way of resolving those competing responsibilities. I mean, there's a responsibility to your colleagues. There's a responsibility to the cathedral as, an, as, a, a, as a place of work. Then there's a responsibility to the reasons why the cathedral was built in the first place. Mm. So to the sort of faith that motivated it. Um, and the really interesting thing is when those two responsibilities go in different directions. And, I mean, that might sound odd that a cathedral and the reasons for which it was built can end up going in different directions. Mm -hmm. But I think that probably uh, is often the case with churches, um, especially in so iconic a building as St Paul's when St Paul's as a building ends up, for some people, being the end in itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the problem, my, my own reading of it. But funnily enough, I mean, when I made the decision to resign, um, it didn't feel like any great... Uh, it wasn't a terribly complicated... Uh, I, mean, I, didn't, I wasn't terribly angsty about it, or, or um, uh, it was a clear red line for me. And uh, when the red line was crossed, that was it. Um, and I'd do it again, you know. But what was the red line? Oh, the red line was pretty clear. The red line was uh, I wasn't going to side... I, I, I refused to side with uh, the cathedral if they initiated a course of action against the protesters to move them on with force when they were peaceful. Mm. And so it was actually not about uh, sympathy with the cause. I'd like to think that I would do that if they were protesting about fox hunting or you know, any, 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 old, any old subject. But, I mean, they were there. St Paul's has always been a place of protest. Um, you know, for hundreds of years, it's been a place where St Paul's Cross, where people came and debated... And the idea that there was this actually very important protest, I thought, um, you know, on the steps of the cathedral, entirely peaceful, that the cathedral would then be complicit in moving them on with force. That was... I mean, I had to explain it to my kids, um, which was, you know, that was an important moment. I found a clip of YouTube Occupy Bris uh, Melbourne mm -hmm. that had happened at, and the police had been in, and it was incredibly violent. And I just thought the idea that the church might sanction, mm -hmm. you know, police in riot gear, pushing people off the steps of the cathedral. That was just something that I wasn't going to be a part of. Right, so, so the actual purpose of Occupy, the, the sort of debating, looking again at how society's organised, those sorts of things were of less interest to you? No, no, they were very much interest. No, I mean, what I said quite specifically was that was the reason that I resigned. Oh, right. okay. So, I mean, I, I was very much interested in it and I thought they were... You know, that was, but I would like to think that I would have resigned mm. had I been less sympathetic to the cause as well. I was obviously sympathetic to what they were talking about. Mm. Um, but uh, so that the actual cause of my resignation wasn't really to do with sympathy with the cause, mm. however considerable that might have been. It was really to do with the, the use of violence in the name of the church. Right. And have there been... I mean, I was interested with the Turkish... Um, I don't know pro, uh, what do you call it, revolution recently, mm. how they also decided to carry on and discuss things outside St Paul's. I mean, do you think it's fundamentally changed how people see St Paul's now? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I haven't... I've been in once since I left. I, I went in right. for, to do um, Newsnight, uh, not Newsnight, Question Time, mm -hmm. um, that they had from there. But I haven't... I've only been in once. Um, so the last time I was in, apart from that one occasion, was I was preaching in the cathedral, and then 
that was it. Right. So, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, it's you know, it's one of the one of the genuine tragedies of it is it strains it strains good relationships. I mean, we, we had very good relationships, but they're inevitably strained by that sort of yes. you know pressure and public gaze and and contestation. Um, so no, I haven't been back. Mm. It's a difficult place for me now. Yeah. It must be. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it seems to have changed the whole trajectory of your career. And um, you seem to have become much more, really, I suppose, a journalist and writing columns. And when I was thinking about how to frame the sort of questions to ask you, I became very puzzled because you are interested in so many things. So that, you know, just in this last week, there's been drones and secrecy. There's been the um, things to do with Israel and women in Israel. There have been many, many things, depression. How, I mean, what is the purpose for you now of having a platform whereby you can talk about, write about, play with question. so many different ideas? That's a great question. I mean, I still think it's very, um, it, it's very faith-based. And um, the one thing that... I mean, I came from a pretty secular family. And the one thing that I felt that religion offered... I mean, I think I'm the first generation for whom religion is not the sort of a, a background default assumption. You know, oh. it's, almost like a, it's almost like something rebellious. You know, mm -hmm. I think I'm probably the first generation for whom secularity is, a sort of, is more of a, a background assumption. So religion comes to be something actually in rebellion. I mean, I've always described myself as a failed atheist. Right. Rather than a... <laughs> okay, rather than a okay. um, and I was, you know, I, was, I think I was probably an atheist all the way through university. But what, right. I, what I particularly value about um, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the scriptures, and that whole, that whole life is that the fact that it raises all sorts of things that, um, you know, that, that are sort of daily, that, that, are, that, are, that are often not... You know, I often wouldn't have the way of raising any other way. Um, it seems to me like, you know the beginning... This is what, I suppose this is what I think about what, what religion can do. You know those beginnings of a, a Hollywood movie? It's a sort of standard beginning of a Hollywood movie where the camera starts up in the sky and um, you see the whole world in the... I mean, this is just a clichéd opening. And then the camera sort of pans in and then you see the world closer and then you inevitably see America and then you inevitably see California, and then it goes... And then suddenly it's someone's house in suburban, wherever, and then you go into someone's living room and then into the, you know, into the kitchen, and then the action starts. And that's the sort of the way in which it comes like that. I think religion is entirely the opposite. So it starts with the, the kitchen or the day-to-day, -day, and then the camera pans out and out and out and out and out and out, and suddenly you see what you do, you know, from the viewpoint of, you know, in the largest possible perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's... Uh, I guess that's what I... So you, you, I find in a way engaging you, about it. Right, so all these different things that you sort of write about are in fact moved by religion, by your religion. I think they are in the broadest possible way, yes. Yeah. So issues of... Oh, from All the way from sort of social justice broadly sort of issues to sort of existential type of questions and yes. so forth. And that, that would be the range via ethics. And, but I think there's a sort of... There's a sort of Christian existentialism, if that's... You know, that's probably what drew me in the first place, um, that I'm still very engaged with. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I suppose, to me, I mean, I'm coming into a slight of, slightly different way of looking at religion, if you like. To me, a lot, reading your articles, the arguments, they're humorous, they're provocative, 
They're well-written. They're very Jewish. And ah, <laughs> they are very Jewish. And I happen to know that you have a Jewish father. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the question is, how important is this to you that... Um, I, I mean, the other thing I read, actually, which I was extremely moved by, was that you um, said Kaddish for your grandmother. I did. Kaddish is the prayer, for those who don't know, it's the prayer for the dead in Hebrew, said when somebody dies. It's a very moving prayer. And I was rather moved. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if you'd like it at your funeral. Yes. I mean, Mike, I have to say it was very... Uh, the poor... The, 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 it was in a windswept Cambridge crematorium. And my, my grandmother was central casting North London Jewish. Um, she, re she really was. I mean, you, just, she was fantastically central casting and um, brilliant. And, you know, I had to be circumcised on her dining room table in St John's Woods and all of this sort of stuff. Um, which, um, but when she died, and, and she was, I mean, she had the most, you know, she was, um, she was a seamstress. Uh, she had a really tough life. Um, but, you know, a classic immigrant experience, my, my gran. Um, and when, when she died, we, we did the funeral in, uh, in Cambridge Crematorium. And I came in, it was such, you know, such a weird thing, mm. in, in full Anglican kit. Oh. You know, so, because that's what she wanted. Right. I'm very proud of, you know, I mean, she wasn't very religious. None of my family are very religious at all. Um, so she was just like, you know, she loved the fact that I was part of the establishment, and mm. as it were. So she wanted, she'd wanted all the kit. So I came in and the organist obviously thought, this is, you know, standard Anglican stuff. And I get to the desk mm -hmm. and I start, you know, blow it, off I go. And it's just like, what, what? <laughs> what is going on? I had no idea. So, she yes. She probably I, would have enjoyed that. She would have enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah she would have enjoyed it. Yes, the, no, the Jewish thing is very, very important to me. And then the more, and, the, and the, the older I get, the more important it becomes. I'm currently writing a book. I mean, there was a, there was a moment, I mean, to tie these conversations to Occupy. So when it all finished, I really thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And um, the Bishop of London suggested that I ought to go up to look at running the cathedral in Liverpool. So I was shortlisted for this job, and I didn't particularly want the job. It was... Um, I didn't really want another cathedral, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So mm -hmm. I went up to Liverpool and uh, came off the train in Liverpool. And uh, I didn't know anybody in Liverpool. I'm feeling a bit down about it. And I was there a couple of hours early for the job interview. And then I realised I did know, had some vague connection, which was my great-grandfather was the rabbi of the Prince's Road Synagogue oh. in Liverpool, which is right, uh, right near the cathedral. So, in fact, I went to there, just killing time, and there's a huge, great big oil painting of my great-grandfather in the oh, front. wonderful. And it was incredibly moving. Mm. And I thought to myself, I mean, in, in a sense, this is how the book starts. Um, well, it is the story with which the book starts. And I, and I had this incredibly strong sense. He was there. He was called um, Samuel Friedeberg. He ran this, and if you know that synagogue, it's a very anglicised-looking synagogue. I mean, it looks like a church. And it's a very strong sense of all these people trying to fit in. So they were Friedeberg. The family changed their name to Fraser and Freeman and Frampton, all anglicised names. He wore a dog collar. So, you know, Jewish clerics in that part of the early 20th century, they were clerical collars. He called himself Reverend. So he was Reverend Samuel Friedeberg with a big, thick clerical collar, oh. and in a, in, a, in a synagogue that looked just like a church. The bimmer was just like a pulpit. Um, 
And I had this very strong sense of all these people desperately trying to fit in. Mm. Desperately mm. trying to fit in with the, you know, the sort of the traumas of, I mean, really, it was the traumas of Russia and the Pale of Settlement and all of mm. the traumas that, that had been there in, in Belarus and so forth. And they'd fleed over here um, in the East End. And another one of my grandparents looked after the sort of um, Jewish uh, welfare in the East End. It was one of the charities. Oh. Um, Board of Guardians. And so it was yeah, the Board of Guardians. He was, yeah. he was he worked for the Board of Guardians. And, um, you know, then, and then they all assimilated and in, in slowly assimilated to the extent that I, you know, my father married out and then I become a priest. And a then reverend. At, uh, yeah, a reverend and, reverend. and at St Paul's. And it's just like, and that was just, wow, from that side of the mm. family, I was the ultimate mm -hmm. product of assimilation. Mm. And it felt very strange. It felt a very strange sort of, it felt like a betrayal. You know, there was a, there's a sense in which there was this, you know, there's this tradition that goes back, you know, you could trace the, the, the family faith back um, thousands of years, I guess, and, um, and yet it stops with me. Uh, and that is, and sort of, that's quite, really quite tough. I mean, it stops with my father, really. Um, but that's quite tough to sort of uh, engage with. So it feels like a betrayal. So there's all of that that you that you wrestle with, yeah. A betrayal, as though somehow... Well, Christianity being a betrayal, it's a betrayal of, a betrayal of that faith which goes back a long way. I mean, you know, mm. Christianity, Christianity has always been... I mean, you know, Christianity is the, uh, has been responsible for, um, you know, so much persecution of Jews. Mm. So it's almost the idea that the assimilation has gone so much that you, um, you end up... You know, there's a part of your psyche that thinks, I've sided with the persecutors against the persecuted. You know, that's the... Um, so there's a very strong... You know, that's something that you sort of... That's not something that you sort of easily to justify, but it's certainly a, a feeling which is really quite... Which is quite... Um, it, it's quite painful and difficult to, mm. difficult to deal with. So that's part of my sort of wrestling with Judaism. But also I have a very Jewish sense of Christianity. Very Jewish sense of Christianity. I'm not sure I understand that. <laughs> Jesus was Jewish. Well, uh, Jesus yes. was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus, no, Jesus wasn't a Christian. No. I mean, and it says it's yes. a very, very, yes. very clear. I mean, you know, and, and the idea that, um, I mean, Christ, you know, Christianity and Judaism go their separate ways after the destruction of the temple mm. for various different reasons. But the whole of Jesus' mindset is, is entirely Jewish. Yes. And I think that's something that, you know, when... Christianity and Judaism separate and go their different ways, Christianity begins increasingly to lose its sense of mm. um, its Jewishness. But, you know, I have a very strong sense of reclaiming that Jewishness of Christianity. That's really interesting. In fact, in one of your articles recently, didn't you talk about how the Old Testament and the New Testament shouldn't be seen as opposite well it was that you know that awful thing that the mail did about um yes. uh, miliband and, mm. and, and in that editorial they say um we do not maintain like the jealous god of deuteronomy yes. that the sins of the fathers and that particular trope which is you know old testament is violent and nasty and mm. and the new testament is full of forgiveness and i i, I particularly dislike that mm. um that distinction because actually there's a lot of hope and uh, forgiveness in the Hebrew scriptures and there's, and there's actually quite a lot of violent, nasty stuff in the New Testament as well. Um, so, you know, why pick on the Hebrew, why pick on the Old Testament 
And I think that's an anti-Semitic trope, actually, mm. when we do that. And I think mm. it was in that particular context. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's... Um, I think that's, it's very important to have a... I mean, you know, the, the idea that the Old Testament, as Christians call it, is something that somehow a sort of second-degree type of biblical book is something that was declared heretical very, very early on in Christian history. In the year mm. 144, Marcion, who made that... Who, who, who wanted to propose that, was declared a heretic. And Christianity isn't just the New Testament. Christianity is the, yeah. the Hebrew Scriptures. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I have a very strong sense of that. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I find this very interesting. I very rarely talk about religion. Um, but I, I'd like to move it slightly in a, a different direction, which is you wrote a couple of extremely interesting articles, as far as I was concerned, or columns, on boredom. Oh. And, I mean, it's hard to imagine you bored, but um, what I find that very appealing because, again, the idea that you can take some space in life and just allow boredom, and from boredom, well, either the unconscious or creativity, these sort of things can emerge. But I often find with groups and with other people that it creates panic, depression, mm. anxiety... Mm. And I wonder if that's the sort of thing that you were grappling with and thinking about. I mean, if you want to close down the possibility of being bored, I mean, there are some people who are so fundamentally over-diarised in their life, mm. you know, they're constantly, constantly doing things, and you almost feel that it's a fear of that empty space that somehow lurks below yes. them. Yes, yeah. And actually, so there's one thing is that the fear of boredom runs you. Mm -hmm. and, that's a, and actually, we're... Better to face the, the empty space than to be constantly driven by, you know, filling it up with stuff which you perhaps don't want to do or people you don't want to see, or, you know, but you do yeah. it because you're... I think, it, I think the fear of boredom closes down our world and mm. makes it a smaller space, but we're terrified of being bored and we, and we sort of pathologise it, you know, only boring people are bored. Mm -hmm. All that sort of stuff that you say, you know, you should... I mean, I, but I think boredom is an incredibly creative time. Mm -hmm. um, for children particularly, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we constantly fill our kids' holidays with so much stuff, you know, especially middle-class parents, you know, horse, they're horse-riding or they're the cumon or all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. They're constantly doing... And actually, I think there is a, a much more creative thing to be had, which is just go out into the garden and come back at tea time. Mm. <laughs> you know? and we, I, mean, I mean, a lot of people of an older generation would recognise that as a way in which they were, they were brought up. But we're, and mm. I think there's a sort of fearfulness these days about um, boredom and uh, everything has to be sort of instrumental for a purpose. And I think, and I think that, that crushes the possibilities of human life. Well, I mean, I completely agree. But it seems to be a huge anxiety because then you've got Twitter and blogging and, you know, all the kind of things that people use to distract themselves. So if you sit on the tube, for example, I often, if I sit on the tube, I see, a, you know, in front of me, everybody's on a phone or an iPad or something like that. Is that also an anxiety at looking at people? I mean, I have to tell you, I'm a huge hypocrite in this regard. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I, I'm absolutely, because, I mean, you know, I sit here with this here and, uh, yes. um, I mean, I'm constantly... I mean, a part of the reason I recognise this phenomenon about the fear of boredom is that I have it myself. Right. You know, so it's... it's you what know, is your fear? 
well, I mean, I guess that empty space. The, yes. So the empty space is a space in which you have to deal with your own vulnerability, your own loneliness, your own, you know, all of your demons. And, you know, I wrote a piece, I wrote quite a dark piece this mm. um, Saturday in The Guardian about, you know, what that space can look like yeah. um, when, you, when you sit with it for a time. And it can be, you know, it can be incredibly dark. So I understand why people are afraid of it, but actually the fear of it can also, if you don't sit with it for a while, the fear of it can also drive you mm. in ways that... I mean, I, I've been doing therapy for uh, about three years, and one of the things that I sort of learned, a practical thing that I've learned from therapy, is it's not, you know, it's not the, um, it's not the sort of original pain that is often the problem. It's the mm. way in which one deals with the original pain. Yeah. So the, the ways in which one runs away, or one drinks too much, or one, all the various different forms of apparent, you know, medication for it, are actually worse than the original fault and deepen it. So I think there is, it's worth, you know, sitting. And it was rather funny that I, I just, um, I wrote that column, which was a very, very, I think it was one of the darkest columns I've ever written. And I talked about the possible, you know, I mean, I, I have thought about suicide in the time and all that sort of stuff. And was that, there was all of that in there. And this weekend, I've been in New York and I've been having the most fantastic weekend. And I, I was just thinking, when I wrote it, I was incredibly low. And I think, this is so ironic. And I kept on getting phone calls from people saying, are you OK? Are you OK? Are you really? And I was having an absolutely fantastic weekend. So it's really bizarre. <laughs> I'm quite tired. I just got off the plane this morning, so I'm completely jet-lagged as well. But, but that's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. Did you want to reassure us? Because What, just then? Yes, because it, it was... It, 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 I thought it was an extremely <coughs> brave article. I really did, because it, at the end of it, it seemed to be saying that prayer was the way out of suicide, and which I didn't quite understand. No, I didn't, no it's not the way out. No, it's not a route out. It no. wasn't saying that. It was the... So, I suppose for me, what I was saying in that article is that I think one of the... My sort of great theological hero is St Augustine. And what I love about Augustine is that Augustine has um, a very strong sense that human life is dependent on that which, which is outside of our control. And I think Christianity, at its best, is a sort of training in dependency, learning that you're not, you know, you're not necessarily the author of your own happiness or well-being or... or, or ultimate purpose, that somehow the centre of gravity in your life exists outside of yourself in some way, and that you are dependent. And I think there's a sec all sorts of secular equivalents of that. Um, I think, you know, we're dependent upon other people. And, and I think that that makes you vulnerable, and we're mm. terrified of vulnerability. We're all terrified of dependency and vulnerability, and we want to be invulnerable. I mean, we live in a hyper-individualistic age where the, the ultimate... Prize is not to be vulnerable to other people, uh, to be sort of, you know, self-dependent, self-authoring, mm. um, protected and so forth. And actually, I, I don't want to live like that. Um, and, I think that's, and I think Christianity is one of the most, uh, particularly that sort of Augustinian tradition, is one of the sort of clearest ways in which it says actually we're, vulner we're intrinsically vulnerable mm. and we're intrinsically dependent upon others. Mm -hmm. And that will, you know, that's, that's something you can't really protect yourself from. And prayer is the, 
I mean, like in this context, is the, I hope it's going to be okay. Well, it's, it sounds like it's developing more connection with yourself, being a bit more confident, if you like, about the dependent, the vulnerable, the bored, um, if you like. But it, it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, actually, because if, if we are very vulnerable and we are dependent, and I actually think that's fine, this whole business about secrecy, how do we get privacy and secrecy? Because you were talking about the seminar you'd been to where you were obviously having this wonderful time, which was actually around, about drones and secrecy. And it seems to me that we become even more vulnerable if there are no secrets, if there are no, is no privacy. It's true. We're living in a very different world with regard to this. I mean, everything seems open to view in a mm. way that... I mean, of course... In the scriptures, things are open to view. I mean, there's a great psalm that begins, O Lord, you've searched me out and known me. You know exactly what I do. You know exactly what I think. You know. And then the next reaction the psalmist has in that is, how the bloody hell do I run away from this? Because it's terrifying. It's absolutely yes. terrifying. It's like to be fully known is terrifying. Mm. Um, and that is, a, that is where... I mean, we're heading much more in that direction mm. with our openness... With my children, my children will put everything on Facebook. And I think, oh, my God, you know, in 20 years' time when they're trying to get posh jobs and there's pictures of them snogging boys on Facebook, you know, I mean, what's that? What's it going to be? We, we, you know, we're having less and less secrets from the NSA all the way through to our personal lives. And that will, I think that will reconfigure uh, a lot of how we live with each other. Do you? I do. I, I mean, I, I, and I think we're not quite sure how... I, I'm not quite sure how it will how it'll change things. But I think that sort of, how would we live with, I mean, what would it be? I tried to, I thought, I thought about it in my book the other day, this is, I, and I just, I thought, what would it be like to write a, a book, so the book is quite autobiographical, that was absolutely, completely honest, and you said everything. And I thought, I don't, I don't know if I could do, I really don't know if I could do that. Absolutely, you know, complete, full disclosure about... Um, and, of course, why, part of the reason why we're so afraid is we're afraid of the judgment of others, we're mm. afraid of um, the judgment of newspapers, the, because the judging, the judgment is not benign for the most part. So we live in a, in a, in a world that encourages us to be open and then is not terribly benign in how we're judged. I mean, the, the whole point about the divine in the, in, the, in the psalmists and in stories is that there is someone who knows everything about you, but that person ultimately loves you. Well, that's one thing. Mm. Um, that's not quite the same with Mr. Dacre or something who wants to know everything <laughs> about you, but I don't think he ultimately loves me. Um, so, <laughs> Never mind. <you> know, <laughs> I'll get over it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but there is, that's, and I think that's something, about, you know, that's something about the way in which we can be closed down in uh, you know, our fearfulness of the other. But um, there's something about the way you're talking which I suppose I don't know that how you could ever be totally honest. No. Because as soon as you start opening and thinking about things and organising thoughts, you're already changing them. Yes, that's exactly right. So what, there's two particular problems with, mm. as it were. So when I was thinking there, what, what would it be like to be completely and yeah. utterly honest? So one of them is, the first one is like, can I tell everybody my secrets? Okay, but the next one comes through is, um, uh, how truthful would I actually be even if I was as truthful as I could be? 
yes. uh, if you understand what I mean. And to what extent is even my most truthful a form of distortion? Um, which that's a complicated thing. You know, you start to write stuff down. So I, was, I started to write some stuff down, which I'm sure I won't publish. And I looked at it and I thought, but even is, is this really true about you? And, mm. and is it true? And that's quite complicated. But also, as you rightly say, the fact, of dis the fact of writing things down also changes the truth that you're trying to disclose. Yes. So yes. You, it's a very, you know, the nature of uh, truthfulness is actually much more complicated than, you know, I have something hidden, I'm going to show you what it is. Mm. Um, well, I, but that's interesting, you see, because that's to do with relationships which a lot of your articles uh, are about. And that's what I think is really interesting, is how people interact with each other, how they change each other. So that even just now, for example, when you started talking about the dark article that you wrote, one, you immediately moved to something that's very different to that, that you had this wonderful time. And again, you, so then we start changing and elaborating. It only makes sense in relationship. Mm. Mm. No, I think that's right, um, which is a partly why I... It's partly why I have a problem with quite a lot of the... I mean, you know, the sort of modern individualism. Mm. Um, and also just through the... You know, I, I spent quite a lot of time doing philosophy and the way in which we just conceive of the human person. I mean, I think Descartes got a lot to answer for with cogito ergo sum. I mean, the idea that, you know, that the foundational reality is me... Mm. And then I somehow, I struggle from me to get to you. Mm. I might not know. I mean, you know, the, the, whole the, whole, the whole interpersonal problematic of Western Christianity, uh, in, um, Western philosophy, for, it starts with, you know, I know myself, but I don't know you. Mm. So how do I overcome this gap mm -hmm. between me and you? Um, and that's what happens if you start with something like cogito or something. But actually, there's other places to start. And actually, I don't think we begin with, you know, I, I know myself, but I don't know you. I actually think, if you, if you think about us as children, mm -hmm. we don't begin separate. We begin linked. So there's a fantastic Henry Moore sculpture in, in St Paul's Cathedral. Um, and it has, you know, it's a mother and child, it's a Madonna. And you can see they're carved from the same piece of stone. Uh, yeah. And actually, it's just like we begin not as separate individuals struggling to overcome this philosophical chasm between me and the other, but actually we begin as linked. Mm -hmm. And we learn. I mean, if you, you know, if you do stuff, you know, if you, if, you, if you read brilliant people like Winnicott, you know, what they're talking about is the way in which we become a self through a process of detachment. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, you start together and then you learn to be uh, singular. That's a sort of more of a, a learnt thing rather than an original experience. Well, well you learn to become through the relationship through as the re you detach. Exactly right. You start seeing the other person and then you can start having a conversation. But you're never doing it in isolation, no. which is what Descartes was, you know, completely mistaken about. Mm -hmm. so, so to that extent, I find... You know, reading psychoanalysis and that sort of tradition, the sort of post-Freudian tradition, whatever you want to call it, um, much more interesting than mm. the philosophical tradition on this subject. It's very interesting to me what you've just said because it describes the method of psychotherapy, if you like, that I'm interested in. But I, can I put you another question, which does link to that? Because 
I don't understand. When we talk like this about what therapy, psychoanalysis, what thinking is about, why are people so frightened of therapy? I'm much more frightened of religion. <laughs> well, lots of people find religion, of course. Yeah, I quite understand that as well. Um, why are people frightened of therapy? I mean, people are frightened of exposure, aren't they? I mean, that's just it. I mean, it's a different thing. People are frightened of... But don't you think people are hungry to talk about themselves, to be listened to, to be heard, to be understood? Yes, but they're frightened of it as well. Right. And that's the, I mean, it's not dissimilar to religion. Um, and, and, you know, if you're in a position where you can give people... I mean, if people... If, it's about trust. Do we live in a... I think we live in a, situ, in a, in a, in a society that has much less trust in it. Mm -hmm. People are frightened. Uh, I think we are frightened. We're very competitive. I mean, that's the whole nature of late capitalism is that we, we compete with each other. Times are hard. There's, I think, actually, you know, we are generally quite frightened. And there is something... Mm -hmm. For me, part of the sort of... The, the disclosure type of thing, mm. is it's a, it's a sort of refusal to be frightened. I mean, I am frightened, but it's a sort of... I won't be beaten by the fear. Um, but I think people are frightened by therapy, which is precisely frightened by how open can I be about who I am. And, but it's so... It's such a shame, because in a way... Why are you frightened by religion? <laughs> well, because you seem to have answers. I mean, I... Personally... <laughs> My view is that there is so much I don't understand. I'm so overwhelmed by so many different things, um, including Twitter and blogging, I have to add. Um, but I'm so overwhelmed by so many things that I don't mind the fact that I don't know why I'm here. It's enough for me that I'm here to have conversations with people like you, to get to know myself, to have a quality of life. I don't need to be here because there's some higher meaning and I get very frightened, in a way, when I've got to be here for a purpose that is even more confusing, as far as I can see. But, see, what I'd, what I'd reject in there is the premise that religion is about supplying answers. Right. So that, it, actually, that's what it does. I mean, if you, you know, if you, read, if you read the scriptures, the scriptures are people whose, whose uh, you know, anxieties about the world problems are placed in a just larger context. I mean, I think there are, there are forms of ideology that shut down and, and there are forms of religious ideology that shut down questions. I mean, I think that religion in the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, early from the early 20th century, with the advent of fundamentalism, and fundamentalism is a very interesting phenomenon, I mm -hmm. think fundamentalism basically... I mean, this is not religious violence, this is very different, but fundamentalism mm -hmm. is basically a 20th century phenomenon. And I think it's a reaction to the absolute uncertainty created by capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, you know, it creates such uncertainty. Um, people move, there's, 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 there's traditional cultures get, uh, get messed up and displaced and so forth, and then someone comes and say, here is something solid, here mm -hmm. is some answer. Mm -hmm. okay. Now that, that form of, you know, and the firmer the better, that sort of religion is not the religion that has existed for the majority of religious history. Just absolutely not. Now, there's two anxieties. One is that, and the other anxiety about religion is religion and violence, you know, that, that religion... And that's, that's always been the case. That has always been the case. But the thing about that is, and this is no mitigation, but I think violence often comes when people are engaging with uh, the most passionate things of human life. Mm -hmm. So... You know, the, the, the fights that happen on the high street 
uh, on a Friday night, generally speaking about, you know, girls, <laughs> love, and, you know, mm. and all those sorts of things. Plato was probably right, if you want to stop all of that, we'll just get rid of, we'll get rid of passion, we'll get rid of eroticism. Well, and yeah, yeah. So um, that's not a defence of it, and, I, and it's terrible, but... Um, so that would be... I mean, and that is the great criticism of religion about its violence. But, but in terms of fundamentalism, I think that's a 20th century phenomenon in terms of the, this supplies answers. Because if you look at the great Christian thinkers of the past, religious thinkers of the past, often they are struggling with stuff. They're struggling with great questions. And that's what they're doing. So... Um, but, but the great questions always seem to be about why are we here? And... Uh, I mean, as far as I can see, um, it's a very difficult question to answer, but it does seem to me it takes away from something about getting to know yourself, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe well, asking the question takes that away. Yes. It, so you like, want not to ask the question? I can't possibly answer it. I didn't say you could answer no. it. I asked whether you wanted to stop asking it. Why am I here? Um, to a certain extent, No. But to a certain extent, yes, I don't want to be dogged by why I'm here. My sense of purpose has to be in the relationships, in the life I'm living now. Well, then you've given... So you've answered the question about yes. purpose. You've, yes, you've my given purpose it. Is, is straightforward. So and you've, given it, you've given but it... But is that a religious purpose? Well, I, we weren't talking about religion. We were just simply talking about the big question of why are we here, what are we... Yeah. So you... I mean, I, I, mean, I just want to keep... I, I want to ask that question. I think something about that question is terribly important. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of understanding one's life from the perspective of, from the widest possible perspective. What is it about? What is, it to, what is human life all about? Now, I, I think people, we do all those, ask those questions. And I think religion is the, the history of, of actually asking those big questions. And I, yeah. so to the extent you're, you participate in all of that. I don't mind, I mean, I suppose when I think about what you've just said, though, for me, religion, it's not the violence, because people do seem to be violent, whether they're religious or not. It's, it's the way in which religion becomes organised and then seems to demand a certain way of behaving. Yeah, I like disorganised religion. I don't like organised religion. Most, relig- most religions disorganised, actually. Um, right. It, it isn't organised religion, it's disorganised religion. But, I mean, you know, I, I, you're quite right when it becomes institutionalised and certain sort of problems. But, you know, if you, if you, look, at, if you look at the Bible, for instance, mm. I mean, there is a struggle between the institution and the non-institution, and that's part of what's interesting about it. So you get those who are sort of priests, mm-hmm. uh, interested in the cult, interested in maintaining the cult, mm. and then you have those who are criticising the cult, and those who are sort of freewheeling and so forth. And there's a very interesting interaction between those who think there is a a corporate identity Mm -hmm. to religion, um, liturgical, sacrificial and so forth, and those who think that needs to be constantly reformed and criticised. So it has, you know, I think that that religion has the, you know, the scriptures has, has a huge amount of, self-critical vigilance about that question. But I think you've got to keep that question on the agenda. I would agree with that. But the the thing, why do you feel that religion has not betrayed people? It betrays them all the time. 
Yeah, because, I mean, that's my big concern, but, if you like. But then do you... But I, what I, so, here's the thing. Let's put it this way. What I love, <laughs> what I love about religion is how shit it is. Let's put it this way. OK. Yeah. What I love about religion, in one sense, about... Yes. What I love about the Church of England... Here's what I love about the Church of England. Mm -hmm. The Church of England has the most hideous, terrible history. I mean, we exist because Henry VIII couldn't keep it in his trousers. Yeah. OK. I mean, you know, that's not, that's not some great noble cause for which we exist. I mean, there is, there is a... The, Precisely because our history is absolutely dogged with examples of failure, complicity, mm -hmm. it makes it impossible for me to pretend I'm anything other than, uh, you know, in hock to all of that as well. That's great. That's absolutely... So what I, what I find more problematic is people who will locate themselves within the tradition because it gives them clean hands. And they go, yeah, yeah, this is all fine. My, my tradition's awful. And that's really good because it keeps me absolutely addressing all those questions. And it keeps me on my toes about myself and about my own complicity with all of that. But if we just simply exist in a tradition which is about, oh, you know, I, I, I have this very narrow, very small, very lovely tradition which doesn't do anybody any harm, mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm scared of you. Yes. Then I'm scared Or I want of you. a lot of your money. So I can build a <laughs> <laughs> then I understand you if you want my money. I understand you. But I, 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 I'm afraid of good people. I'm, I think I'm afraid. Of, oh, I'm afraid of people who. I'm afraid. I think people do a lot of really dangerous things out of, out of the best of motives. I agree, but now it's over to you. <laughs> Forty-five minutes for everybody here to ask questions of Giles and to take forward these discussions, if that's what you'd like to do. Please feel free. I think there's a roving mic. Is that right? Right. Are you going to pick people? Or? You can do it together. But um, this gentleman seems very eager. Right. Thank you very much. <clears throat> uh, thank you for your f fascinating talk and answers. Um, you were saying that you felt a bit of a traitor uh, becoming a Christian or becoming a Christian minister. Um, because of the persecution of Jews by the Christian church and so on. Uh, from what I've read, you, you probably also have difficulties with the virgin conception, the, uh, the, the uh, resurrection, the, the Trinity, Holy Ghost. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't? No. Okay. Well, we can, there's three well, issues there. Well, we can... well, and, and, and How many more do you want? We can talk about them all in turn. Particularly with the Church of England that you were saying, uh, which, with its hierarchy and its extreme or its considerable organisation. What, what is it that really attracted you to Christianity? Well, uh, and um, why, do you, okay. why do you stick to it and preach it? Yeah. OK, well, that's a very good question. And there is a... Um, I mean, just, just to... I mean, you chucked a few things in there. I don't have the sort of problems that with, with all those things that you might think. I would I, I be happy to talk about them for as, as long as you like. I think the core of Christianity for me, um, and it's probably why, uh, you know, the possibility of being... You know, some people... I sat here a few months ago on this chair talking to the novelist Naomi Alderman, who's just written a really interesting book on uh, um, Christianity and Judaism, and said, why aren't you a rabbi? <laughs> And I think the real core answer is why I'm not a rabbi is that, is that of the incarnation. And that, for me, the story which is absolutely central to my 
sort of faith is the idea, uh, the revolutionary idea, which is almost impossible to accommodate in any other religious perspective, is that God becomes human, and God becomes in a particular place. And, you know, what, what, where Judaism and Christianity are unbelievably different is in this regard. So, you know, that, you know one of the purposes of the temple is to keep God and humanity, well, the, the shittiness of the world at arm's length. I mean, there's, this, there's a fantastic story about, uh, um, that, that you'll know from, you may know from um, uh, uh, Shlomoansky, um, isn't it? Um, that uh, only once a year you go into the holiest of holies. The only person goes in in Yom Kippur, it has to be the high priest. It has to be, you know, in the holiest of holies. And all this big thing gets built up. And so the high priest goes in there on Yom Kippur and then the bit, the great bit at the end. If at that moment the high priest has one impure thought, the whole world is destroyed. Now, that's the idea that there's the pure and there's the unpure, and they have to be kept, you know, separate, because they're brought together, then something terrible happens, some terrible sort of um, crossing of the lines, as in, uh, what's that, no, a Ghostbuster, sorry, that's a really bad, but uh, something terrible happens, um, and we can talk about what that is if you like. Christianity says, it makes it absolutely explicit that it happens, so, you know, that, that God is born in a shitty stable next to them, the pure and the impure are absolutely pushed right up against each other. Now, that's a completely different understanding of, of the nature of, of God and that you get there than you would have in Judaism. That, you know, the, so when... when um, there's a story about the Romans. When the Romans uh, heard the opening of St John's Gospel, they loved it. It's poetic. In the beginning was the Word, all that great philosophy, and the Word was God, and the Word was, word was with God, and they go, oh, that's just marvellous. You know, even the Greek was better than the other Gospels. And then, verse 14, it goes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Romans go, what? What? That's ridiculous. I mean, the idea that, you know, the eternal Word ends up and then being born in a, in a shitty stable, surrounded by a political reality with Romans soldiers. It's just ridiculous. Now, that, for me, is the very gritty, earthy nature of Christianity, which means that, actually, that is where I'm located. So that's the... That, for me, is the sort of emotional core of Christianity. I mean, I think the Trinity is terribly important. I think the resurrection is terribly important, but I will talk about those another time. But if you want to know my emotional core, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the incarnation. Over here. Hi. I actually wanted to ask... I haven't got your name. I'm so, will you tell Sue. me? Sue. I wanted to ask you a question. And I just start by saying I have a friend who, on your passport form, when you had to fill in what is your religion, used to put therapy as their religion. <laughs> Sorry, did you hear that? <laughs> what, 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 what did you say? No, it was... My, I have a friend, it's just a fact, who used to put therapy as his religion oh, on I his see, passport. Right. Okay. But I actually wanted to ask you, because you asked Giles if religion, how he felt about religion betraying people, and I just wondered how you might feel about whether therapy has betrayed people. Whether therapy betrays people. Well, you asked how does he well, feel about betrayed religion people. betraying betrayed people. people. I think there are therapists that have betrayed... It, it, therapies have betrayed people. I think there are therapies that have led people astray. I think there are therapists who have led people astray. 
But the thing that I think is valuable about therapy, probably links to religion actually, is that if you, take, if you hold on to a notion of not knowing and that what you're doing with somebody is you're involved in a conversation with them to help them discover themselves. In that sense, I don't think therapy can betray. I think when therapy tries to tell you what to think or tries to give you advice, then I think you are betraying something because the important thing that I think we, most therapists, if you like, believe is that, that people can actually discover themselves and that probably links quite closely to religion in lots of ways. They do seem quite linked. Sorry? They do seem like there's a God, there's a possibility of a God in both of them if you're not careful, and there's also I mean, human there is, yes, weakness there is in both faith, of them. Yes, the notion of faith, because the unconscious is not proven, is it? I mean, I can't believe that it doesn't exist, because dreams and things like that. But there is something about faith. I'm not sure I'd take it much further than that, though. Do you think there's a link between... It's interesting that you talk about dreams, of course, which has a long religious... You know, yes. there's, there's, dreams are a constant... I mean, I would talk about... I would think that the mm. link is... The link for me is, for both, is something to do with um, that which is beyond our immediate understanding, that which is mm. other, mm. which is... Um, I mean... It's curiosity, isn't it? Freud talks about um, a sort of original original vulnerability, some mm. sort of original... And, and there's something about that, about human beings, which I acknowledge. Mm. Um, and that we're also driven by forces beyond our immediate control. I mean, I'm, I'm really quite hard on rationalism. I'm a really... I mean, I'm quite... I mean, I'm, the reason I'm sort of quite anti the sort of new atheist type of stuff is not that they bash religion. I, I really, really don't mind people bashing religion. And I, I mean, I did my PhD on Nietzsche, and Nietzsche's as vociferous as anybody in bashing <laughs> religion. What I really dislike is um, the idea that what we need to do is define a, a sort of method by which um, human knowledge can be sort of captured and you're comfortable with it and it's mm. sort of... And, and, you've, and, and I think it's, it's an attempt to control things. I, I'm, and, I, and I think that that which is... I think that which is really interesting is really beyond their control and it's messy and it's complicated and, and I'm more interested in that. So I, I have a problem with the sort of trying to... Uh, trying to put all of the stuff that, that, that we're about in a sort of box. Well, I mean, of course, therapy is very messy. Mm -hmm. And getting to know... And it's yeah. fascinating. That's yeah, the exciting is. bit, isn't it? Yeah. The sort of finding... Well, I don't know the idea of things being beyond our control. I mean, certain impulses. You, you were talking about people fighting on street corners and things like that. But what... It, what I find intriguing is how frightened people are of having conversations with others. I mean, real conversations. And really, in my view, particularly as a group analyst, real therapy is about having real conversations with people that touch so that you actually get to know each other in a, in a way that brings it alive. Um, and that's very different. I mean, I was complete... I looked at... Um, Giles' articles, obviously, to prepare for tonight. And then, for the first time in my life, I looked at the responses which came through Twitter and blogging, and I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked by the sort of things people felt free to say. So I prefer a real conversation. There's over here. There's a gentleman just here. Thank you, and thank you very much for a, an enjoyable evening. Um, 
you said something about, or you, you laid a pretty serious, yes, yeah. you got, um, uh, indictment at the foot of capitalism. Uh, could you say a bit more about that? Is your main um, concern about capitalism that it seems to create inequality or to to emphasize the natural propensity which we seem to have towards inequality, or is it something quite different? Uh, um, it's, that's probably not my main criticism, actually, of it. I mean, uh, it, the extremes of in, inequality that it can create are I have a problem with. Um, but that's probably not it. I think it's something to do with... I think, I think my, my problem with, with capitalism is that... Um, one, it's premised upon an extreme form of individualism. And two, that it only seems to have one sort of value. And the value is freedom stroke choice. And that's the, that's the value. And th these two things, I think, are linked. And those, those are the... I mean, I think there's... Let me start by saying that I suppose I should have started by saying capitalism does lots of things very, very, very well. I mean, capitalism has pulled... I, I can't deny capitalism has pulled millions of people out of poverty in China, and there's lots of extremely valuable things that capitalism's done. I think capitalism has also... Um, I mean, I'd even go so far as... I mean, I'm sort of slightly taken with the sort of um, Friedman's golden arches theory, which I absolutely... I just, I just think it's so funny, and I think it may be half true. I don't know if you know the golden arches theory. It's basically to show that... It's, it's, it's a way of saying that capitalism promotes peace, and um, the idea is that if you trade with someone, you don't fight with someone because you have a vested interest in... And it's called the golden arches theory because uh, the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman proposed that no two countries... It's wrong, but it, it, he proposed it's great. No two countries that have been, gone to McDonald's have ever been to war with each other. It's a fantastic theory. It's actually not true. But, but nonetheless, the idea behind it was that if you trade with each other, you don't fight with each other. And, well, that's obviously very good. And, the, and, and the, you know, it's, it's absolutely brilliant, incredibly powerful tool for sort of generating wealth. And so, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things that, I, that I get about it. But... I think it's turned freedom into a certain sort of cuckoo value that's pushed out all other values. And I think there are values, and I think something about community, something about justice. I mean, I, you know, the, the flows of money have disrupted uh, very many sort of traditional ways of living. And I do... It's, the point about capitalism is it's incredibly powerful. I mean, it's just incredibly powerful stuff. And it can just wipe away. I was in the Amazon uh, in November, uh, dealing with it, uh, spending some time with this fascinating uh, group of people who were runaway. They were runaway slaves who'd formed communities in the in the Amazon. They were they were taken by the Portuguese uh, by the Brazil the Portuguese to Brazil to work on the plantations, and they the Brazilians didn't get rid of slavery until very, very late, late 19th century. And they, they ran away and they hid in the Amazon. And they formed these, so they just worked, they, 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 they fish, they, they have their cassava, they have these sorts of very simple sorts of lies. And as the sort of agribusiness has, you know, opened up the Amazon, 
So there's this extraordinary story. So they, you know, they just lived there. They, they, they think they better, they need to protect themselves. So they've gone to law and said, we need ownership rights of these areas. The indigenous people in the Amazon have rights, but these aren't indigenous, they're runaway slaves. So they, um, they need rights to protect their, the place they've been living for, for several generations. So they went and got um, rights to the land. And then the next thing that happened when they get rights to the land is they get a tax bill. Because, because you know, the land needs to be productive, according to the Brazilian, you know, being one of the great economies that's on the up. And for it to be productive, um, for, it to, for, it to, for them to have, they've got to go and work for someone else. So actually now they're going back to work for the plant, you know, big agribusiness. And they're saying to me, it's just like we're returning to the plantations from which we escaped. Now, you know, that's not happening in the world, but there, there, is, there is a very powerful thing about change. And I think we just think that capitalism is, and I, is just a sort of, is just how it is. Um, and I don't know any alternative, by the way. I'm not proposing, I, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here proposing that we, you know, I, I think the sort of communist thing obviously failed. But I think it would be wrong for us to see all the advantages of capitalism and not to recognise also it has a shadow side. And we haven't lived like, you know, this hasn't been a way that we've lived for, for thousands and thousands of years. We've, we just sort of did without it. It isn't the same as trade. It's something different to that. So, yeah, I do have a... I, I think we ought to be more self-aware about the shadow side of capitalism. And one of the shadow sides, I think, and I'll probably take a long time to justify this, is that actually it pushes out all other virtues apart from the rhetoric of freedom and choice. Do you think, therefore, the Occupy movement was a waste of time? Uh, no, I certainly don't think it was a waste of time. Um, I think one of the advantages with... Uh, I think what the Occupy movement did was got people talking about these sorts of issues down the pub. And I actually think that was terribly important. I mean, the way in which we're shaped by the things that happen in the City of London the way in which our lives are shaped by it, it is incredibly important. And I think for that to be a matter of greater public concern and conversation, you know, for those people who've traditionally found economics boring and, and the idea that it's done by experts, I hate the idea that it's done by... Don't you worry your pretty little heads about, you know, what goes on in the City of London. This is something that we'll have a, an expert on at... at, at um, at 20 past seven on the stay programme, and they'll explain all of that, and then we can get on with dealing with No. It is something for all of us. So what the Occupy movement did was actually, you know, broaden the conversation. And I think that was a really good... That's a really important thing that it did. Um, are we any nearer finding alternatives? No, and I don't know if we... I don't think we are any nearer finding alternatives. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't have raised the, the issues. And, and, um, and I think we, you know, we have a greater sense of that there is something terribly important about, um, about the city and about, and about the way in which we conduct our financial affairs. It's not just about how much money we've got in our pockets. There's something deeper than that. But it was also a young people's movement, and that was really, or may still be, in fact, it may not be over, but that's a very important part of it, isn't it? Here were young people coming out again. Hmm. Yes, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't anything like the protests of the, the 60s and all no, of that sort of no, stuff, no. but... It is true that there's a sort of age of protest that seems to be um, 
I was, I was always despairing of, I mean, a few years before, I was always despaired of, of the younger generation, as old people always do, and I was just despaired, you know, when, so when I, was, when I was young, I was listening to protest music, and, mm -hmm. you know, so my lot was my punk and the jam and all of that sort of stuff, and, and then all of my children, they were all listening to music about, you know, shaking their booty or whatever, and it was just like, <laughs> I really, really can't you think it's going to have something higher than this? And, mm. and actually, I was wrong about all of that. There mm. is a... There, there is a um, uh, I hope. Uh, anyway, I think there's some more questions. Oh, yes, just here in the centre. I'm still puzzled as to why you continue to stay in the institutional hierarchical church, you know, in terms of how you've defined your kind of core belief. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, the continuation of hierarchy seems to perpetuate that split between pure and impure in some way by clericalism, by priests, by still having priests mm. in that kind of role, really. So... Uh, it seems to me that you seem to be really advocating something much more on the level as a, a body. Or, but you see, uh, I don't believe in having a pure position. You know, I mean, in, in a sense, if I was sort of trying to... I, I struggle with the institution of the church, absolutely. Though I also have a, a fundamental sense of loyalty to it. I mean, it, so, you know, there's both... I mean, I do have that, and I think that's terribly important. Um, but, you know, do I feel compromised... Uh, uh, complicit uh, by being a part of the church and stuff that I don't like? Yes, of course I do. Uh, definitely. Um, does that mean I should go? No, it doesn't mean I should go because it, it's not just simply about me wanting my hands to be clean and so I wash, wash my hands. So you have a choice to stay? I, I do, yeah. Oh, well. So the hierarchy toler can tolerate you then? Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, yeah, they do. They do tolerate me. I mean, it's, the Church of England. I mean, the Church of England is quite interesting. It's, I mean, it's a very diverse body. It's a, you know, we 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 are the big tent. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, understanding the sort of good thing. You know, my apologia for the Church of England and my understanding of it is that it's really created. I mean, I know it it exists before this, but I think its identity is created after the English Civil War. In fact, by the, about the time that St Paul's Cathedral was being built, and I think its purpose is, you know, so. During the 17th century, people are beating the hell out of each other about religion. And, and you know, the, the Civil War is, I think, substantially a war about religion. And then at the end of that, when that sort of, how do we put this country back together, the Church of England existed as a sort of movement for, for national reconciliation. And, and the idea of it is, and this is so funny, really, but it's sort of true, is that, OK, we'll invite a non-religious priest... Okay, a non-religious church. So what you do is you come together to pray, but you don't talk about... It. This is how the English character gets formed, I think. So we don't do <laughs> isms. We don't talk about anything that might divide us. We can pray together, we can sit in the congregation, but don't talk about God, don't talk about theology, because theology is dangerous. So we don't talk about sex, you know, dinner party rules. What are things you're not allowed to talk about at dinner parties? You know, all those things that you might have an argument about. You don't talk about those sorts of things. I think that's invented after the... And then at the most extreme, you get those vicars in Jane Austen that are only interested in wandering around the parish on their horse. And they never seem to have any existential... Uh, they, 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 God is absolutely nowhere on their ken, at whatever. I mean, all they, in, and basically what the Church of England does is it, is it replaces God with being nice. OK, well, you can see why it does that, because religion was about killing people during the 17th century. 
Now, now I, it's very easy for us to sneer about that and kindness, actually. Actually, it's rather important. I mean, I, I, I think I'm more existentially angsty than, than most Church of England being nice type of vicar. And I'm not very good at being nice, so I'm not very good at being a Church of England vicar. But it's, I think it's still that big tent, we're all together, it, it is, it, it's deeply ingrained in, the, in the, the identity of the Church of England. And I sort of value that, even though I kick against it at the same time. It's not neat. Isn't it's it? also dying, yes. It's also dying, too. Oh, just down here. Actually, while we are finding a mic, it reminds me of what you said earlier about being like a friar, that in a way you wander from place to place with your ideas, writing articles, looking at... being interested in a range of different things that belong in the world out there. Mm -hmm. And that does have a sense of, do you need a church to be a friar? You see, this is where I want to defend the institution a bit. Where it's, mm. it's because I just, the idea of being some sort of freewheeling guru mm -hmm. who just like, oh, here's another idea. I'm a part of a tradition. Right. I grow out of a particular, I have a particular sort of, um, I'm rooted in a particular place. Mm -hmm. And however much, you know, I may feel rootless at times. That is, I mean, I have this, I gave a lecture which I was rather proud of after Occupy, which is about my favourite cowboy film, which is The Magnificent Seven. And The Magnificent Seven is, um, is a sort of contrast between two types, the farmer and the gunfighter. Mm -hmm. And the gunfighters are rootless. They're super cool because they, um, they don't have any roots, they don't have, any, they don't have to be settled down, they don't have any vulnerabilities. And the, and the farmers who, because they're farmers, they have to grow crops and they have to stay in a place. And that makes them vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And they have to be loyal to that, that place. Now, I understand that. I think there's a bravery about being loyal to that place. Mm -hmm. However stupid you look, in defending it, how vulnerable the farmers are uncool, mm -hmm. the gunfighters are cool, but they don't, the gunfighters don't produce anything. They don't have, you know, they're all, they're all super cool in themselves. It's your umbrella and Steve McQueen, but they mm -hmm. haven't got a, a, a loyalty to something like that. And this is, I mean, I used to, when I used to teach philosophy, I used to make all my undergraduates watch The Magnificent Seven. And they go, what? <laughs> What's that for? And then I'd tell them and I'd say, you know what happens here? Usually what people do when they come here is they will read me out super cool essays about how... Heidegger's rubbish, and Hegel's rubbish, and Wittgenstein's rubbish, and they'll bang, 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 they knock everything down. And I say, yeah, if you really want to impress me, you really want to impress me, defend something. Mm -hmm. Take some territory and defend it. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can be cool, telling everybody that talking rubbish, but if you really want to be brave, mm -hmm. and inter take some territory and defend it. And then other people will start coming over the hill for you, mm -hmm. absolutely, but defend something. And that, for me, is like why I'm not, I don't want to be a gunfighter. I think yeah. there is something worth defending, however critical you may be about defending it. So that's mm. sort of my loyalty to the... In a way, that's the, the question mm. that you've asked me about why I remain loyal. There's a sort of dogged, farmer-like loyalty to my plot. <laughs> Not that I ever go outside zone one and two, to be honest, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> Except my pet, maybe. Uh, there's a question here. Oh, where, whoever's got the mic. You say we avoid theological questions. I'd just like to ask you, you what your take is on the resurrection, because, I, perhaps briefly, um, because I know that's a stumbling block, certainly for me, in approaching Christianity, which I am very interested in, you know, and perhaps it's a stumbling block for others as well in our rationalist world. Yeah, the, the little is going to be difficult. Let me just say this much. Um, you see, my, my approach to, 
a whole load of these questions. If you're simply asking, in the first instance, did it happen, without asking what it means, then so what? I mean, so what? I mean, it, even if it happened, without really understanding it, it's just like, so it happened. So it was a funny thing happened 2,000 years ago. Okay. And, and if you obsess about, you know, the fact the factualness of it, about all of this sort of stuff. I mean, I've got my mate Martin Rosen, who's a cartoonist for The Guardian, who I love dearly and so forth, who's a member of the National Secular Society and Big Wheel and so forth. And he said, it wouldn't matter to me if God existed. And I, this is completely right. I think he's right about this. He said, we were having a curry the other day, and he said, if God walked through the door and said, hi, I'm God, I'm proved. I said, very good, nice to meet you. Very good, bye. It wouldn't make any difference to his, it wouldn't make any difference to his atheism. Now, I, I think he's completely right, because everybody thinks the question is simply, does this exist or does it not exist? No, that's not the real question. The, the first, second, third question is, what is this about? What is this trying to... What, it, what does this open up? What is this trying to say? So, if, the reason I find the debates about religion that we have now so arid is they're just about whether it happened or it didn't happen. And, you know... The, there's a place for those debates. But if you think everything's settled by, by having those debates, I'm not sure that I agree. So I suppose, and I suppose this is part of my journey into faith, is that I bracketed out a lot of the questions about, did it happen, does it exist, for quite a long time. And actually, you let that world shape you. And then those questions take on a different form. That may sound, you know, uh, it, it may sound you sort of like, I can see someone in the audience going, aha, that's an aha moment you've just said there. He doesn't really believe it. No, I do believe it. I do believe it. But there's a different way in which you can, you, you, you know, that you, you don't ask yourself those questions. I mean, I am not racked. This is not the same, okay? This is not the same. But nonetheless, I am not racked by whether Sherlock Holmes lived at 22B Baker Street when I'm reading The Hand of the Baskervilles. That's not the question I keep on asking myself as I'm reading The Hand of the Baskervilles. I mean, I'm just, like, taken up by what's going on. And I think we've lost the art of being taken up by what's going on because we're completely obsessing about these sorts of questions. Now, those questions are significant, but they've become too determinative, I think. But that's... I haven't... I've delayed answering your question, which is... The resurrection, and that would be a long, you know, that would be me doing the. That's a big, that's a big thing. Darkness doesn't win, I guess is the answer to that. There's something about you valuing the imagination in all of this. There's something about you saying, aren't you, that the imagination is an important tool in Compl trying to understand what it is we're dealing with in these kind of areas. It has to be. Yes. Yeah, no, it has to be. And, of course, with religion, the arts have always been... Mm. I mean, this, in some areas, the arts is simply propaganda, mm. but some it's integral to mm. what it is to understand. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Did the mic reach out? Oh, yes. Um, one of the things that comes across in your way of presenting things is very Jewish again. It's questioning of authority. Looking upon organised religion, um, organised politics and everything as a means of controlling the masses, um, and there's a touch of 
anarchy about your approach. I mean, in the West, we've been brought up with this idea that um, everything has to be in an ordered way, um, has to be for a purpose and all those sorts of things, and not to question authority. And that also comes through the church. Uh, all the great religions have been sort of organised for political purposes soon after they've originated. Mm. And all the great prophets, even in the Old Testament, the greatest prophets were the ones who rebelled and turned round to the kings and the political organisers and the t chief priests of the temple and said, hang on a minute, that's not what God wants you to do. They said, you know, repent. And that's what Jesus said as well, yeah. repent. Yeah. Are you still effectively pursuing that type of, some would say, an anarchist viewpoint as about control? I mean, it's certainly the case that... It's certainly the case that institutions... Are, institutions, is, it's, institutions is an easy word to use. It's, it's not just like, you know the bishops and the buildings and all of that sort of stuff. It's just the way in which the sort of, a certain sort of groupthink begins to happen. I mean, I, I do think if, you know, if Jesus went on Fox News and said, you know, cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly, fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty, he'd be completely ripped into as, an, as, a, as, as, a, you know, as a communist, as an enemy mm -hmm. of the state. And yet they will have, you know, bishops or vicars or preachers terribly respected um, going on there um, because that's Christianity. But actually, some of the stuff in there is extremely revolutionary stuff. And, and I use revolutionary sort of advisedly, but I mean, it's disruptive. And it doesn't sit well always with... Um, it doesn't sit well entirely with a sort of settled mentality. I mean, I'm very disturbed by religion. I mean, I think in a good way, but I mean, I think it's genuinely disturbing stuff. And the idea that it's a sort of alibi for some settled, comfortable um, life is something I just don't recognise in... And the idea that that's what it's about, um, when it just becomes a sort of... When it becomes a delivery system for, for ethics just a delivery system for a sort of gentle form of ethics. I d I'm not interested in that, really. There's a gentleman at the back. I can't see because it's gloomy. Now, I thought for a minute it was the Archbishop of Canterbury. It absolutely terrified the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my eyes are going, oh, dear. <laughs> it's not wishful thinking. No, 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 it's certainly not wishful thinking. No. I think no, there's a gentleman perfect. nearer here. Who's... Uh -huh. I, I wanted to make a few comments about fascinating similarities that have been drawn and differences between religion and the psychotherapeutic or the psychoanalytic or whatever ideal. Because I think that the far from religion in this discussion being nice in, in your hands, uh, it's robust and it's questioning and it's the things that I think psychotherapy, psychotherapeutic world, world should present. And I was reassured that it was acknowledged that it's sometimes messy. But more than that, I mean, anything as powerful, and I do believe that, is going to have its downside. Yeah. And people have been betrayed. Yeah. They've also, therapies have failed with enormous amount of input because therapists are, are, are only able to do what they can. There are some people, few perhaps, who shouldn't have it. 
And the question was, uh, from the chairman, why are people scared of therapy? You know, it sounded as if such a nice little thing. Who could possibly not want a conversation? Well, I think, retrospectively, I would never have gone in if I'd thought now what I know now, or I'd have certainly worried about it a hell of a lot more. There's, there's the fragment, fear of fragmentation, the loss of, of all the defenses one has, the core sort of what I am at core, empty or or horrible, bad, um, am I going to have a psychotic breakdown? So, you know, am I going to have to be hospitalized and so on? These are all realistic things, not the most common, but just like religion, it doesn't have a, a, a sort of something to offer that gives guarantees and is all clean. Uh, quite the obverse, and I think I would go for your sort of view of religion, is that it needs to be like that too. It needs to get its hands dirty. Um, but we have to acknowledge that. And it's, not, it, it's a whole lot more than just a conversation. It's a conversation with knobs on. <laughs> a conversation, sorry? With Milton. Oh. I mean, I just, yes. I agree. I want to say yes, but. Because um, in, in linking it to psychotherapy, although I very much agree with what you're saying, I think one of the things that intrigues me is that people will put themselves through the most terrible things rather than go to therapy. So people cut themselves, attempt suicide, go through the most terrible depressions, all sorts of things that actually sometimes just talking to somebody would ease. But the kind of worry that one has about betrayal and things I think is absolutely right. It's just juxtaposing it between what people endure rather than going to a therapist and rather than talking to somebody. And I think that's, for me, it's quite worrying at times. By the time people come to therapy, they have done often very, very difficult things to themselves and been through some really terrible times. So um, it, it's very mixed, is what I'd say. There's a question up here, right at the back here. No, Um, we're talking about betrayal, and uh, I want to say something about communism, because for me that was an answer to life, if you like. Um, and certainly we've seen the betrayal of communism everywhere in the world. It hasn't worked, it's failed. But I still believe in it because capitalism cannot possibly work in the sense that it leads to wars everywhere, through trade, particularly, as you mentioned, uh, the New York Times writer. And it's messy, and it's going to be messy because human beings are messy. But that doesn't mean we should reject organizing the resources of the world for the benefit of the majority, rather than individual ownership. Was that a question? Yes. <laughs> what, what was the question? Well, what, what do you think about, what do I think about the possibility yeah. of, of uh, achieving a, a communist-type socialist, a communist-type state? <clears throat> I, I um, uh, This is going to sound quite dark, really. I quite, I, 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 what I believe in genuinely is I believe in the existence of tragedy. And by that, I mean that um, I don't think there is some... Uh, big answer to human, you know, the whole of human uh, existence. There's no great uh, silver bullet with God's politics. There's sometimes that things are uh, 
in uh, there's no way out, and sometimes there's, there's contradictions. Um, and the sort of utopian dream, the political utopian dream, is also has its shadow side. Um, and though I share with you, I absolutely share with you that dream, that's where I, that's where I am, I'm, I sort of, I also am aware of its, of its failures and its dark side. And I don't think there's a way of having a political dream that doesn't have failures and dark side. So I have a sort of, I mean, I'm going to, this is going to be incredible, okay, here we are. I'll say, I'll say this is both controversial and dark and miserable all at the same time. It's probably the last thing I'll say. So I was, um, uh, I'm very interested in Israel-Palestine type of issues. And, um, and the way in which a lot of people deal with um, that, I mean, I, I'm interested in both sides and people usually take a very binary view. Are you sort of, you know, pro-Israel or are you pro-Palestinian and all that sort of stuff? And I want to reject the idea that you have to choose between being both. I wouldn't be both. I, I also have a sense of, um, uh, I understand why the state of Israel exists, and, and I've gotten in trouble in The Guardian for describing myself as a Zionist, um, <laughs> which is to say that I, you know, I understand the dream and I understand why it's there, and I, and I sort of, I do support it. But I, I you know, I understand the, the, the absolute, you know, misery that's visited upon Palestinians because of that dream, and I've been shot at by the Israeli soldiers in Gaza. For, you know, there's, I mean, I sort of, I see... And uh, there was something the other day that Amos Oz was writing about, and it sort of, I felt, oh, God, this really captured my worldview. Um, and he says, look, this is a genuinely tragic situation. And by that, it's a situation of rights versus rights. There are different sorts of rights that are competing here. And many people want to just, like, avoid the idea that this is inherently tragic by saying, I side with X, or I side with Y, and marshalling all the arguments on both sides. And he said, no, it's genuinely tragic. And what we do in a genuinely tragic situation is there's two different sorts of tragedy. The Shakespearean tragedy, at the end of which the stage is littered with bodies and blood. And that's the one we want to avoid. Or there's Chekhov's tragedy, the end of which there's no bodies, but everybody's pissed off, disillusioned, unhappy, <laughs> and they've, they've lost faith and so forth. And that's the sort of tragedy we want. That's the best we could have. Now, it was a bit of a dark, but I completely understood that with regard to um, the Israeli-Palestinian. Particular. I understand the compromises that I think are needed uh, in there are going to be ones that lead everybody disillusioned, entirely disillusioned. And that disillusionment is fine because it's a lot better than the Shakespearean tragedy. And I almost, I feel that, and when he was saying, I think, actually, God, that feels like me about a whole load of things, about politics and so forth. I preferred us to be, you know, I prefer us to be disillusioned than fighting ideological battles that fills the stage with blood. I think that's true about religion and, and about politics. I agree. Down here, there's, there's a question down here. <coughs> I think I want to say something about um, struggling with a world that feels full of a culture of one truth at the moment. So it's, everything is fundamentalist. And I think the capitalism that's being imposed on the NHS is fundamentalist. And I have to say, the NHS is probably my religion. Um, and I think probably both psychotherapy and maybe religion suffers in the sense that actually I think maybe they're both waning. And I wonder if it's because they haven't left their consulting rooms and they haven't left their churches to get onto the streets to protest enough. 
Well, I don't think. I mean, I, I I'll just speak about religion. I don't think. I mean, I agree, I mean, I agree. One truth is dangerous. One, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the whole point about talking about tragedy, talking about bigness, talking about messiness, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, one, tr one truth is incredibly dangerous. And I agree with you that, that capitalism can present itself as the one truth, which is something that I really, uh, I, I really, I was going to use the word despise, and I thought better of it, and now I think better of that. I despise. But um, I don't think that's necessarily true about religion, actually. I think religion is much more variegated than, and Christianity is much more variegated than you describe it. I mean, I think it's... On a march recently, though. Sorry? You haven't seen one dog collar? I have, I have seen one. I was very pleased to see it. I go but... a lot of them, but I got to tell you, I never wear dog collars. I hate them. So, how, so is that. So, no, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, you know, how, do think... you know, how do you know who's there? But it's so rarely that people leave their churches and say something revolutionary. I have to. That's my impression, anyway. You're, you've used the word revolutionary a lot today, but I, I hear the word, but I don't see the action. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, I say, I don't mean revolutionary. Revolutionary is a, you know, it's a big word, and perhaps I use it too, and you're quite right to call me the fact that I use it too um, cheaply. But the churches are often present in places of, and have been historically, of great social transformation. And uh, I would, I would, I mean, there is a, there is a, there is at the same time a sort of smugness about some churches and the way you can get into, and also there is an extraordinary um, energy for change that are in some churches as well. Um, I think that's, I, I think it's probably, I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty critical about religion, but I think it's, it's, it's quite unfair, I think, to say that that's not a part of the whole religious sort of flora and fauna, because it is. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I think we actually are almost at the end, but I think this was linked specifically to trying to rescue, well, the whole issue about the NHS in particular, mm. that somehow the NHS is something that religion, that religious bodies might themselves feel should be saved, should be held on to, because it's exactly about trying to provide things for people more generously or make um, services more available. So I, I think it's something about a very down-to-earth fight that's being raised at the moment. It's true. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I completely agree, but I mean, I agree in this sort of like, I, it's obviously right for me that, that's, that what you're saying is true about the NHS. And it's a very strange place to finish because we actually have to finish now. It's nine o'clock. And um, just before I thank Giles, can I say that please do feel welcome to join us in the bar outside where we can perhaps carry on some of these discussions together. But thank you very much, Giles Fraser, for an extremely interesting and stimulating discussion.